Hello everyone. It's me Abu Bakar and Sandra of course here with you. Hmm and your favorite duo back again. But this time <laughs> we're not just going to be talking about happiness. Uh we are doing a three episode series titled Identity and the Good Life. Yeah, so in this uh series we'll be covering a host of let's say uh theories uh concern you know uh the individual uh stemming from self-love national love as well as um let's say societal love and how these things contribute to a, in to an individuals individual, how they shape in our lives and society and how we reflect on these things and see ourselves yeah exactly exactly so from me i will be talking about hegemony today you'll be talking about a hegemony <laughs> a hegemony a hegemony hegemony i don't know how to pronounce is it hegemony or hegemony it is hegemony yeah so i'll be talking about uh antonio uh gramsci <laughs> antonio gramsci and his uh, neo marxist theory on hegemony in particular uh cultural hegemony and i will also explore the concepts which uh has been hugely influential in contemporary society and polit- contemporary society politics and also cultural theory and sandra will be talking about orientalism orientalism what do i feel like i'm going to have a problem pronouncing that word orientalism <laughs> yeah i got it <laughs> but that sounds fancy though yeah it does sound fancy so the word was coined by edward said but mm-hmm. i wouldn't want to go into too much details because we're going to take it step by step abubakar mm-hmm. is going to walk us through and talk to us what the term hegemony means it's good to keep in mind that um those two topics that we're trying to um cover has to do with national love mm. um an individual love for his um country yeah and uh, the possibility of where these uh let's say this uh, affection Ideologies, towards your yeah. country or nationality comes yeah. from Co- yeah come from exactly and then how they shipping an individual yeah so is the love place. coming from you or is it coming from someone else is it coming from the elite or is it, is coming, it coming from, from the political class yes or is it something Precisely. that you know like it's uh, natural within you yes so we'll be finding all that out so stay tuned don't, don't go, go anywhere, anywhere. And welcome back. Thank you for staying with us. So, before we went, we said we'll be talking about hegemony. First, then we'll get to orientalism. Orientalism. Hegemony, hegemony. Is it that I wasn't paying attention in class or was I not there? You were in class. Maybe you weren't paying attention. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, you were in class. No, but mostly I interact with Sylvia's class. Yeah. Which, we, by the way, um 
has been amazing. Yeah, big shout out to Stevia. She's been so amazing. This yeah. cost model has been brilliant. And the way she ran it was just so it amazing. Was just really amazing. An incredible woman and she deserves an incredible applause. She does. I was dancing to that. I think she needs more. Yeah, enough. We don't boss our head enough. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, let's see. The term hegemony now is uh, it stems from uh, classical Greece, where the term hegemon was used to refer to a state or a city-state. So, it uh, it was held as um, a kind of a city-state that had political and military dominance over others. So, examples of uh, city-states from that period was uh, the Spartan hegemony, which refers to the time when, uh, let's say, uh, the Spartans had dominance over, let's say, majority of Greece. So for much of history, the term was used to describe this kind of uh, physical uh, or geographical, you know, control. When you say that, it reminds me of the movie Spartacus. I mean, it's, it's, it's that the context that we're looking at it at. Yeah. In that context, right? Yeah, yeah it's kind of something like, like similar. Yeah. yeah. But however, in contemporary scholarship, the term has been developed to refer to control outside the relatively simple notion of physical control. Okay. Yeah. So the theorist who was who was widely credited with this point of view is the uh, although let's say this philosophy is Antonio Gramsci. Gramsci. <laughs> Gramsci, I love that. I love the name. I was going to say that. I love the name Gramsci. Yeah, Gramsci. So now he was uh, an essential figure in the Italian communist regime. But at the end of the at the end of the 19th century, of course, but when Mussolini and the fascists uh, took over power, uh, Gramsci was put behind bars. He spent the next 11 years of his life in prison Mm -hmm. and he subsequently died there. (laughs) but it turns out that this time this period in his life was the most productive while he was in prison he wrote uh, extensively and some of his ideas and theories have been incredibly influential over in the the modern day day. in terms of politics in terms of uh, social settings Mm mm-hmm and as well as culture. Culture, yes, and cultural studies yeah. as well, yes. Yeah, we covered him in class, and when I was looking at him, I was I asked myself this question, is that why is it that um, people, there are some people that they have done, uh, let's say, some of the best things while they are behind bars? An example that I can think of right now is Mandela. Mm-hmm. While, in, while in prison, he also had influence in the, South African, let's say, anti-apartheid. Yeah, why in prison? While in prison. But do we, if we talk about people in prison, I, I don't want to talk about what's happening in Nigeria, but people who are behind bars in Nigeria seem not to have mm-hmm. so much influence outside. So could it be a thing of the past? Do you think it's like, do you think we can see that like in this society, like you put someone behind the bars and we talked about this one time when we talk about people, most times when they're behind the bars, they have like, um, they come up with good ideas and remember that's what we talk about right? yeah but um, yeah you're right I don't see it happening now because even me like social isolation 
it's mm-hmm. seen as something that's a sort of like escapism yeah for you as a person and it gives you time to reflect to meditate to meditate on things on things but gramsci while in prison wrote the prison notebooks okay the prison that's notebooks. what he called it yeah i mean that that stuff was voluminous and one of the key comp- components of his philosophy of praxis as he calls it was hegemony alongside ideology and organic intellectuals but we wouldn't be we won't go into the other two which is a uh, uh intellectual inter- organic intellectuals and ideology but we'll focus on on hegemony but gramsci used these three concepts together to describe and analyze how societal classes or social classes come to dominate society so but just like in classical greece his own hegemony is still about control particularly he uses it to analyze how the ruling class come to dominate in a capitalist society but his key development was to acknowledge that such power does not come through physical power but through cultural dominance huh mm. interesting interesting but <sighs> Let's see cultural dominance cultural that do we have a dominant culture a culture that is dominant yeah back home in nigeria let's take it let's, let's make it local okay um that's mm. a tough one <laughs> uh, okay <laughs> okay let's talk about regionally south yeah, south do you have yes. a dominant culture um Uh, I think so. I think if we look at it that way, because we can't, we can like say Nigeria as a whole. We always mm. say Nigeria is very di- diverse. Um, yeah, when we take uh, let's say Niger Delta, for instance, yeah, I would say yeah, there's there's, there's an element of cultural dominance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess in the north, uh, the culture dominance that you talk about is the language. The because, language. Yeah, up there, ninety eight percent of people speak Hausa. Yeah, that's so true. I wouldn't say the language because we have like different languages and um in the south. I mean, I um, speak three languages, so <laughs> I speak nothing. Yeah, so let's uh, put uh Gramsci's idea in simpler terms. So, he says that the media outlets and let's say the news organizations mm-hmm. are owned by the incredibly wealthy Elites. or let's say the 1%. Yeah. So, as a result, uh these bodies will support political parties, policies and programs that support the existence of, you know, wealth in inequality. Yeah. In society. But this is an example. And let's say um they will present uh, the idea this idea of wealth mm-hmm. inequality as a common sensical world view. Mm-hmm. You know, to the extent that those who suffer from wealth inequality see it as a norm and even support it. Sure. So there's something you said about um the elite the 1% the elite who mm-hmm. own media and then use the mass media as a tool to like um to um sell mm. their ideologies to yeah. the population and then they do these things without um um the audience even knowing right we we buy into these ideas and philosophies not because we confirm to them but unknowingly we just we just accept them accept them i mean yes. we we sort of like uh, got up 
here they are. These are the mm-hmm. things, and we never really question. These, we never really uh, question those things. Yeah, question those things. True. So let's. Uh, so you know the the most often uh, neoliberal capitalism is pre- presented as the undisputed best way of technological and individual growth in any society. And this idea is so deeply embedded in contemporary Western society that those who face the dark side of neoliberal capitalism are often advocates of it. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I mean, this is some really dark stuff. <laughs> really, really, really dark stuff. Yeah, so really dark stuff. it begs the question, like, the way you think, the ideas that you have right now, are you... Like um, the one who is responsible one. Did you come to the conclusion of your philosophy of your beliefs by yourself, or was it, let's say, unknowingly uh, passed on to you by people who want to control you, who want to control the way you think and I, how you do things? I mean, now that you've kind of like explained what hegemony means and everything, and it got me thinking, and to a large extent, I would agree with you that I think some of the ideas that I have or that I got was actually. From other people. Like how? Like, I, I look, you know, when you go on Twitter, I follow certain people in Nigeria, and then I hear them tweet about certain things, and then I begin to form my own narrative or my own story. And sometimes I see myself unknowingly buying into the idea mm. of what this person is trying to pass around. So, you know how Nigeria, um, different people own like different newspaper and mm. magazines, yeah. and how they can try to, let's just give it a name. So, I, mm. I own a newspaper called XYZ. Yeah. And um, you see that newspaper being an agenda, right? So if yeah. I'm the reader and I'm always buying newspaper, I'm always I'm buying into whatever message that you're trying to pass across. Mm. So, so I think that I I see myself I I see myself like when I was much younger I grew up in in, in that like system so I always would buy from the elite because they would just construct the story and give it to us. We have to just pick it up and like oh this is what's happening. This governor is this government is corrupt and we run with that. N- like ideas in our head without even questioning it so much and in academia as well so from so we can now see you're getting it you're actually getting it i am i am getting it so we can now see that cultural hegemony is not something that is obvious to the naked eyes yeah but it can be found beneath the cultural texts and let's say the media it is essential (laughs) it is essentially the idea that a dominant group using culture in order to legitimize their dominance to tell us that yeah you know we are ruling over you and you have to <laughs> you have to deal with it i mean like they can support why they're ruling us mm-hmm. i mean True. Can, can we relate we can relate this to the nigerian government as well okay. we see how they're just um the politicians like we spoke about the politicians that we have the ones who ruled in the 70s and 80s are still the ones that are ruling us now. I do agree with you. It's the facts. I mean, Buhari was that. president of Nigeria yeah. in the early 80s. And 2015, he got elected. Yeah. <laughs> and 2019, he was re-elected. True. He's, it seems like we're just buying into the agenda or motive, whatever it is behind it. I mean, yes, we're buying it. And let's see. Um, I would say in Nigeria, we kind of like have collective amnesia or something. Okay. Because 1999, uh, we became a democratic country. That's 20 years ago now. But 
when we had, let's say, politicians saying that, okay, uh, democracy, we're moving to democracy, we didn't get a fresh wave of young, um, let's say, young, vigilant, uh, visionary politicians. Yeah. We just recycled the old ones. Military oh, dictators became converted Civilian. Democrats. Even yeah. Buhari said it in his 2015 campaign um, in London. He said that before you is a former dictator, but a converted Democrat, as he says. An elite, a group of elite people who have been dominant in the society and are still there selling us. Yeah. And also, selling the ideas to us. The idea, they still sell these same ideas to yes. us. I mean, it's the same thing electricity, water, education, security. Absolutely. Electricity, water, education, security. It has been the same speech since since the sixties. <laughs> so let, so now let's talk about another thing. That let's talk about the idea of what a family is. From Nigeria, okay. uh, when we see commercials growing up, or let's see when we look at uh, TV series that when we were growing up, you know, like Superstory and the rest, and we would see a family where it's the father that's the head of the house mm-hmm. and it's the mother even though she works she doesn't work as much as the dad but she's a caretaker of the children when the dad isn't around okay and most of the time the dad is this sort of authoritative figure you know he doesn't really like uh, show romance to his wife often and they mm-hmm. don't e- he doesn't even show it like to let's say maybe in front of the kids that he doesn't show it okay but us we grew up we didn't even question like Okay, why is our family structured this way? But yes. when you start traveling, you would see around the world like it, here here the is opposite. the idea of family, let's say let's say in the western world is more of a partnership. Yeah. Partnership. Uh, both partners are equal. Absolutely as they say. True. But us is the father. The father figure is always the dominant. It's always the dominant. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah, and we can also see ideas like um, war and so but uh, Gramsci's uh, biographer famously described hegemony as the, let's say, dominance obtained by consent. By consent. <laughs> by consent. In this way, we can see that cultural hegemony as the idea that power can be exercised by and, and also enforced and reinforced, let's say, as much as possible through texts as through physical forces. So... It is the fundamental idea that power is not just ex- exercised through physical force, but also placed through stories that we tell that and let's say images that we make, let's say in whatever form that comes in. Oh, wow. Wow. I mean, this is some scary stuff. I'm, I'm starting to doubt my own beliefs right now. <laughs> you are. Um, and, and somebody might just think that, okay, this is... This is I, I maybe I don't get it or something. Let's try and break it down because I think I was reading something and somewhere I saw that hegemony sometimes can can be like you're in a group of you have friends you guys are like five of you in one group and someone is always dominant mm. always the one coming up with the ideas always the one wanting to pass information or say something and stand out mm. that in its form it's hegemony yeah in a way. Yeah. Then yeah, every day, yeah. So hegemony is everyday reality that we get to face. It's not, it's not you just sitting and thinking to yourself, oh, it has to be one um, media owner or just someone with all in the top. We can see it in our everyday lives that that we 
we yeah, live in. Yeah, exactly. Like it happens to all of us. I guess it's part of human nature. I think it's if I didn't really know you so well, I would say that you belong to that class of people who would always want to force an ideology down and pass it on. What are you trying to say? Oh, but you had me. <laughs> <laughs> I think this time we'll go on a break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be going on a break. And when we come back, Sandra. I will be talking about orientalism. I am super excited to share with you guys what I have. Mm. All right, then. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Never wish your time, never let you go. Top down, back to back, you the best I know. Oh, yeah, you did blow my mind, blow my mind, blow my mind. For your love, I go change my life, change my life, change my life. Yeah, but come here to your ass, make us man, it go. Don't you wait, don't you wait for me, I say so. So many nights I they wait for my time to get you all alone for one eye. You do me something no like I go mad for your time. Thank you for staying tuned. And if you're just joining us, my name is Sandra and I'm here with Abubakar. We've been talking about a national love, 
we explore we explore one topic which is hegemony and we're going to talk about the next one which is orientalism and i will be talking about that so go ahead the floor is yours okay so the word orientalism has had multiple meanings over the past 20 years um but today um i'll be looking at it from its original meaning which was made popular by um edward said mm. at the side i think it's palestinian isn't he um yeah i um, oh god you know i'm not really sure but i think so because he did have an interest for um the, the middle, east. Arab, middle east war yeah mm. that was what like kind of like but of the whole um orientalism so um we've said that we've said something about him i was gonna talk about him but we said that so edward said was one of the most he was one of the important cultural figures in the in the late 20th, 20th century and he defined orientalism in three ways um as an academic discipline a style of thought or as a corporate institution um basically um according to said orientalism is a way of coming to terms with the orient that is based on the orient's special place in european western experience or let's just say the western style for dominating restructuring and having authority over the orient um in his book 1978 mm. when he talks about the orient in layman's term let me just explain to you what it means um edward size orientalism means the way that the west views the east the east the east so is it in a condescending way yes in, in a condescending way how they look is i'm just looking at the microphone and this is a good example to actually explain how it means because i'm looking over the mic and it's it's a slope yeah so that is exactly how the west sees the east so if the west is good the, the east west is, the east is bad the east is bad I, if the west is civilized the east is backwards yes <laughs> yes so and that you, is what orientalism you know that means. that is the problem that we are facing in the modern world today yes everyone has this idea that the west is uh, this haven of you know opportunity of i do peace, agree with of you progress yes but you come from let's say we come from let's say third world countries yes call it that or the underdeveloped countries that were they were <laughs> colonized <laughs> colonized by these same by superpowers the same of western <laughs> <laughs> but yet at some point i would say yeah uh, even we shared that idea that our societies were backwards and uh, not as uh, pleasant as their society yeah true yeah I mean like even in schools when we were growing up I guess we kind of have the same issue when it comes to orientalism in our texts when we Yeah. Did. Yeah, so what more do you have? Okay, well, so in his 1970 1978 book called Orientalism, Said mm. explains that the term is not a western plot to hold down the oriental world, rather it's a distribution of geopolitical awareness into aesthetic, scholarly economic sociological historical and physiological texts um so basically anything that makes a society yeah that's exactly my point mm. anything that makes a society that's <laughs> how they look at it like okay this is not right and 
when he talks about the true definition, that's when it that requires, when you look at it as a star, it's more or less like looking down on the people and saying, oh, you know what? The way you people live your life and the way you behave is inappropriate. And this is what led to the imperial, imperial, oh my God, <laughs> imperialism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to let that word do with me, but so that's what led to colonization. Mm. And so they came in. They came say, in. Okay, let's they us. looked at our culture and said, "Why are you guys dressed this way? Why are you sounding this way? Why, why are, are you women you, like this? Why are women like this?" And then they invaded us. Mm, the scramble for the scramble Africa is for an example. Af- yeah, as an example. And the downfall of the Ottoman Empire. At yes, the time. it's an example. So let's let's look at something that it's, I think is very predominant in our society today in the world that we live in. Um, the way that the West let's say America, let's be specific, um, talks or like the way they talk about the, the um, Asians, Middle East. Yeah, Middle East. Middle East. It's, it's like a classical example of what I'm trying, what I'm trying to pass in. You, you constantly saw the idea that when you see someone with, um, help me. The burqa with, or the hijab. No, the hijab. Mm. When you see someone with the hijab, you automatically think of them as, um, Terror, Back, terror, terrorists, terrorists, or let's say a backward or oppressed. Yeah, uh, uh, That's oppressed. a common one. Yeah, exactly. So, and I think I've been a victim of that as well. And yeah, in in, in some parts, like some parts of some Nigerians actually consumed uh, that idea. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, not knowing they, they just look at look at you. Your women are oppressed. Why are they wearing this thing? Yes. So you know how the media tells us, you know, when someone says, um, there's a thing they said before the, the, the suicide bombing, yeah, right? Yeah. And then you hear that in movies all the time and what comes to your mind is a bomb, a oh. suicide attack. Like he, he's about to um, let go of something at yeah. him. Yeah, and then he'll say, Allah Akbar, and then he'll blow himself up. Thank you. Yeah, and he has to I do, <laughs> When I was in the States, I had this argument with the, let's say, one of a white supremacists. I think I said this in class before. Yes. And... He was he was arguing that I said that ma- what these people are doing has no inspiration from terrorism, and then he said, "What do I say when I pray?" I said, "What do you mean? Like what? Do you, when I want to start my prayer, what do I say? I say God is great. No, in Arabic, I said Allahu Akbar. He said, "There you go." Oh I, my God! What <laughs> does said, he mean? There you go. Yeah. Then I said, "What do you mean? There you go." I mean like the terrorists uttered the same thing. I said, "Hmm, interesting." I said. The KKK killed people in the name of Christ. They were white people. But yeah. would you say that Christianity was the motivation? And then he didn't have anything, anything to say. Anything else to say, yeah. Nothing to say. Precisely. So, Orientalism, it's an old concept. But it goes, <laughs> I just feel it goes beyond, let's say, West and East. Down South, the equator, the part of the, yeah. let's say, the Africa, the Africa. And Nigeria. Yes. It has crept in as well. Yeah. It has crept in so much. I it mean, has crept in. Yes, um, it has. So it has gone past what what um side so as the West and the East. Now we're being, now it's more like we're seeing this even in Nigerian culture itself. It's itself. It's, I mean, it's uh, unfortunate that we look down on our, on ourselves. Yes, sure. There were some things that we did, you know, before let's say uh, before the coming of the Westerners. Let's not lie to ourselves. Okay. I mean, in the eastern part, I guess, um, the missionaries stopped something called the killing of twins, if you've heard that before. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the, if twins were born, one is considered an evil, let's say, entity, and then they're killed. 
<laughs> wow. Yeah. So these things, one of this, this, and let's say some other things were stopped. But when they came, they brought about their own ideology. Things like monogamy, which yeah. is say, okay, a man must, a only, man have, must have, to only have one, one wife, wife, or let's say uh, your wife must take the last name uh, of your wife must take your last, last name. Last name when you get married. Yeah, you when like, you married her. Like you see us as uh, Muslims from northern Nigeria, we do not take our wives and orphans. Do not take our last names. If someone has no blood relation to you, they don't have to take your last name. You don't take your last name. So if you were to get married to me, I don't have to take your last name. You don't have to take my last name. You hmm. keep your last name because hmm. you keep the last name. Um, say, let's say gives an indication of your origin and your origin where you come from it's your privilege nobody can deny you that absolutely yeah, yeah so it's that. something that like a woman keeps her last name a child that is adopted keeps his father's name mm. yeah so that's how the thing because um what i what i read before that a woman taking her man's last name because at the time in that's an era in the western world the woman woman was a man's property and everything a man owns took his name his slaves took his name his wives took his name his property takes his name so these are the things that were brought forth and these ideas like i believe in this adult decolonization movement that we're having right now yeah although i don't know for us in the north we have retained our culture like immensely retained it and yeah. resisted uh this whole orientalism sort of thing oh yeah so i was just as you were talking something just came to my head and it just clicked so all of this do come down to national love where you say someone is a nationalist mm. and i did have that definition of being a national nationalist mm. having a stream likeness for one's country so um we're trying to see, let's see how hegemony and orientalism come together to the embiders one I think sure. hegemony and orientalism are almost the same thing. Almost the same thing. Almost the same thing. Almost but same I guess thing? one is on the in a let's say, in a let's say in a, in a small niche. Let's say like a local like scale, a local, and okay. one is like international. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. True. So, um, talking about orientalism, I just remember the um, the shooting in America. So, if if um, a person of color, or let's say someone who's a Muslim was involved in the shooting what mm. would help Moses a terrorist attack yeah i mean i it takes me back to the orlando shooting that happened in 2016. yeah i mean just one piece of information got out that the person that um did it yeah the shooter yeah yeah the shooter just uh pledged his allegiance to isis before he started before he killed that's the same story they're selling for walmart <laughs> no the walmart incident yeah. i see people even donald trump himself blaming video games and you see as a gamer i've yeah. always been on the receiving end of the idea that okay a person who uh, gaming is for people who are lazy yeah or let's say socially inequipped yeah so we are gamers and it's always when someone takes a gun who is white and just kills people okay automatically people start looking for things to blame to blame and you, you don't you don't blame me on the person you start looking for oh because he's a gamer he plays games or these order and i saw the story that said that he actually this walmart shooter did pledge alliance to isis 
No, I don't think he did. He and I'm like, no, I saw that, and I'm like, okay, these guys are ridiculous right now. <laughs> I mean, like, you what, what? always trying to paint. That's also painting one's religion as as terror, heart yeah. of terror. Like they come and make Islam feel like it's just a religion that is it's a yeah. terror, terrorist religion. Yeah, but here's the thing: um, when we see these things happen, they stem from something. Uh, these terrorists. These white shooters, white supremacist shooters, mm-hmm. every one of them that I know of now, kind of go, go from Church Christ to, let's say that incel Brendan Roger, I guess, okay. that killed people, six people and himself, all of them, like eloquently write a manifesto. They all write manifestos before they carry out their deadly attacks. So these manifestos, when you see it. They have this sort of idea that they are white, they are the supreme, they are the ones who own the country. So why on earth are we allowing immigrants to come in, take yeah, our jobs, going to talk about take that. our women, yes, and they feel that their culture is their country, so their culture, their culture is, is supreme. supreme. So when you supreme. come in, you have to, so you have to, you have no choice. You, you have to change yourself. You, so have, you have to, to assimilate, uh, yeah? assimilate into into their culture, into, into them, into what they believe in. So if you someone wears scarf and hijab, you have to let go of that. You have to be more American. You have to be <laughs> white. That <laughs> brings me to you know when when we're having. Um, um, immigration issues. People, everyone is traveling. People are changing, and then you're talking about being a nationalist of your country and not wanting these people to come and invade your space because all you've been sold in the media, all you've been taught, and all you know is that your culture is more supreme. Your culture is your your identity as a person. It's better uh, than the other person's identity. And so. this this is nationalism. That's- Taken too taking far. too far. The national love. The, taken too, taking the too love far. for your nation. The love for your far. identity. Yes. Taken too, too far, far. To the extent that you demean others. Others. So You're talking to na- people in a condescending way. Yeah. National love. National love is something that me and you have. I mean, we say we are proudly Nigerian. Don't we? Yes. But we do not look at a person from Cameroon or a person from Ghana and say... No, like our culture is superior to yours. To so your culture, or Nigeria is better, or Niger. We say Nigeria is better. better. No, yes. To everyone, to, to everyone, his own. Exactly. And that's all I say. So we love our country. Yeah. And hegemony, and also like when we look at it in the context of hegemony, this uh, idea of national love was it instilled in us? I guess it was because we were taught the history of Nigeria all the way from nineteen uh, fourteen. Yeah. Uh, to the present day and we sing the anthem when the nigerian flag is being raised where it's being brought down we, are told we stand, stand at tears so these and, and we, at a time we flag. didn't know why yes we didn't know why and we grew up with it even if you say you want to throw away the national love you can't there's yeah. always this thing that just brings you back <laughs> yeah true true yeah i so, mean so hegemony orientalism very interesting topics and we will suggest that you guys will keep the links in our soundcloud description to the various sources that we use for this podcast so you can go and check them out also and give yourselves uh, let's say mm, 
educate yourself more about it. Yeah, uh, that's a wild way to say. Yeah, I said like it you can go in depth. And you can go in yeah, depth into just it. So understand this concept and um and yeah, educate yourself. Just be aware that these things happen. You might not know it has a name. I didn't know if not for school. Yeah, so. I mean, we didn't know that. Yeah, you didn't know it had a name. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't know yeah, it had a thing. But that's what it is. Yeah. So <gasps> next time. We will be talking about. Don't ask me. I always <laughs> tell you that. <laughs> oh, well, like on, we Sandra. said, this episode would have like um, it's all about identity and the good life, and we're bringing to you back, mm. back to back, back to back podcast, back to back podcast. Yeah, in back the next three back. days, we'll be releasing. Yeah, something uh, very interesting. Something very very interesting as well. Should very we keep it as a surprise? Yeah, I think we should keep it as a surprise. Why? But you want us to take around? <laughs> no, why? Why you should we keep it as a surprise? We should keep it as a surprise mm. because mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right then. So yeah. it's from me, Abu Bakr. We hope you enjoyed this first episode of. Identity and a good and a good light. Thank good you, life. guys. And it's we will see you next time when yeah. we see you. Hello. Bye bye. Bye.